Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. You know, I actually left academia to be home with my children, meaning I got my doctorate um, and then did not take a postdoc position. And eventually that led to me returning to acting because I was running out of health insurance. That's the truth. And I ended up on this, you know, the most popular comedy in America by accident. That's Maya Bialik. And the popular comedy she mentioned is, of course, The Big Bang Theory. Today, Mayim is everywhere. Her own channel on YouTube, a podcast devoted to mental health issues, a new sitcom entitled Call Me Cat, and an upcoming movie she wrote and directed starring Candace Bergen and Dustin Hoffman. And of course, when she was in academia, she got a PhD in neuroscience. So we had a lot to talk about. This is going to be so much fun to talk because we I think we have a lot in common. We're we're both actors. We both write, both interested in science. And your middle name is Chaya, right? Yes. My wife Arlene's middle name is Chaya. That's lovely. Isn't that nice? Yes. And when I when she calls me from the other room, I say, Vus willst du Chayala? <laughs> That's what I say to my children, but not with the Chayala part. <laughs> do, you, do they call you Chayala? No, they call me Mamala. <laughs> <laughs> you speak, by the way, a lot of languages, don't you? Yeah, well, I was I was raised with Yiddish. Um, it's It's been a minute since I've had to speak it fluently, but um, that was my Mamalashan, as we say. And I was also raised with Hebrew, just, you know, I grew up in a in a a practicing Jewish home. Um, but I learned Spanish in school and kind of kept it up. And then in college, I got my minor in uh, Hebrew and Jewish studies, mm. which involved two, two years of Hebrew, um, both conversational and biblical. And then I did a year of Yiddish at UCLA. A, a whole year of Yiddish. Wow. Yes. that's good. Arlene, my wife, went to uh, Yiddish classes. And when she'd come home, I'd pump her for the lessons. Yeah. And so so when we'd, we'd be sitting at a concert waiting for the music to start, we'd write notes to each other in Yiddish. <laughs> it is a, it's a language with its own beauty and, you know, obviously a culture surrounding it as well. It so. is. I'm disappointed that Israel downgraded it. <laughs> well, they, they had some other agendas, you know, namely to establish a Jewish state with its own autonomous language. So... It was almost Yiddish. It was almost oh, Yiddish. Oh, is that it, so? I didn't know that. 
it lost a vote and they uh, they went with Hebrew and revived an ancient language instead. Yeah. That's, I had no idea. See, you know all kinds of things. <laughs> did you, you started out, what age did you start out as an actor? Um, I started professionally acting at 11. Um, you know, I was in school plays. I wasn't the kind of kid who was very like hammy or personable. I really enjoyed performing. You know, I'm sure my, my therapist has a lot of theories as to why, you know, hiding on a stage felt comfortable to me at 11. Um, but I started professionally acting at 11 and I was cast in Beaches playing the young Bette Midler when I was 12. Um, that came out the week of my bat mitzvah. And then I essentially, you know, had my own television show at 14, which was very strange. Wow. Not at all plan was, but yeah, it was a very, very strange and, and fast turn of events in my life for sure. So did you study, did you work with anybody to, to learn the beginnings no. of it? You just did it naturally. Well, I mean, you know, I think that, that, you know, make believe is, is an art that is, you know, the, the, the career of, of many children, you know, that playfulness and that imagination, yeah. um, obviously is something that, um, is, is tantamount to your childhood in many ways, but, um, no, I'm embarrassed to say, you know, I've never trained formally. I've obviously worked with an acting teacher here and there in my life, but, um, no, I, I was not trained. And, um, well, that's, you know, an, that's, that's another thing we have in common. I never trained either. Yeah. I'm but, very intimidated by trained actors. They, they know a lot of things that scare me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, not always. Sometimes the training shows. When the training shows, it's not not Correct. been successful, I think. Yeah. But I, I, I grew up watching my father from the wings mm -hmm. and watching burlesque comics and Broadway actors. So I got, I got a, a look at it, and they were family friends. So, right. but, but oh, you, you, you learned your acting from your natural talents and watching rabbis. I, I mean, you know, my, my dad was a drama teacher. He wasn't my drama teacher. Oh, no but, kidding. Yeah, but it, he was, I mean, my parents were both English teachers, you know, by training and by craft. They were first generation Americans. And so, you know, my love for theatrics, I like to say, you know, came from my crazy parents who were constantly, <laughs> you know, they, they were their own routine, you know, as were my grandparents. You know, I had one set of grandparents who didn't really speak English and, they were hilarious, you know, and, and my, my more American grandparents were also hilarious. So, you know, in like radio days, you know, depicted, there was just a lot of color and, and, and insanity and beauty to, you know, being kind of an immigrant family in America, you know, and I think even though I'm younger than a lot of people, uh, you know, who had that experience, that, that really is my experience. You know, my grandparents fled Eastern Europe and, um, you know, I grew up with that kind of scepter uh, hanging over us. And we used to say, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. So there was a lot of comedy in my life. And <laughs> I don't want to say a lot of lying, but a lot of bending of the truth. And I guess I learned to, to mimic that. <laughs> you remind me, the importance of laughter was so interesting sure. to me. One time I was sitting next to Wiesenthal at a dinner and a, a man came up to the table and said to Wiesenthal, remember me? And they both went silent. Hmm. And tears started to come down Wiesenthal's face. They had not seen each other since they were in a concentration camp together. Oh, wow. Now, before the man came to the table, Wiesenthal, who loves, loved jokes, 
had launched into a funny, long, funny story. And the guy interrupted the joke midway. After the man left, Wiesenthal turned to me, still with tears coming down his face, and finished the joke. I love it. That's amazing. That, that to me, is the spirit of surviving, yeah. surviving no matter what. The show does go on. You didn't study acting, but you sure did study. How did you come to the conclusion that you wanted to go back to school after you had already starred in a television series? Yeah, so I um, I was on this show Blossom for five years. I was 14 to 19. And, um, wow. you know, as I as I hope you can tell by the way I described how that came about, you know, this felt like a very accidental fame that I kind of wandered into. You know, when I started acting, nobody looked like me on TV. You know, I couldn't get commercial jobs. The parts that I got were for, you know, what were called character roles for, you know, character mm. actors. So the notion that someone would make a TV show with me in it was extremely far from my consciousness. And to be honest, when it happened, it was very overwhelming because what was always interesting to me was performing and, you know, getting it right, you know, getting it right and moving on to the next scene. So all of the other like stuff that came with it, that's that wasn't really what was holding me in the industry. You know, the fame or the money or this, that that wasn't what I craved. You know, I I was the grandchild of immigrants. I was supposed to go to college. And so that's what I did. It's what I wanted to do. Um, I also worked with Woody Allen just before, you know, uh, Blossom ended. So, you know, at that time in my career, I was kind of like, well, I've done all the things that I thought I should do in life. So. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll go to college. <laughs> ready, ready to retire and read books. I mean, you know, I was 19 and I like was feeling like I'm tired, you know. So um, <laughs> I, I had fallen in love with science, you know, as as many people do. I had a wonderful, um, a wonderful tutor and she inspired me and gave me the confidence to believe I could study science, even though it didn't come naturally to me. And so I went to UCLA. I stayed close to home. And um, yeah, I was away from the industry for about 12 years. I did a couple episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm um, in there. And I auditioned for some stuff here and there. But um, I was really happy kind of being in the in the real world. You know, I was sure I was recognizable. But once you're in science classes and everybody's getting ready to go to medical school, they don't care who you are. They just care if you're going to get a better grade than them on the chemistry test and, you know, <laughs> knock off their place in, in the med school line. Um, so, you know, I ended up getting married. We had two kids. We had our first son in grad school and, and my second son I had after grad school. Um, so I had a whole other life. You got a Ph.D. in neuroscience. Mm hmm. What? How did you gravitate to neuroscience and that particular branch of it that you did? Yeah, um, I mean, I I originally, you know, was really fascinated with with biology and with DNA. Um, but you know, to be honest, once once I took one of my first introductory classes at UCLA and uh, we learned about the neuron, um, I literally had a moment where I said, "This is the level of understanding of the universe I want to have." Um, you know, the, the electrical properties of, of the cell and, and just everything about that. The fact that neuroscience is, you know, the science that explains consciousness and speech and, um, degenerative conditions. Like it was just, it was all the things about the universe that I wanted to understand at that level. 
Um, so I ended up studying um, obsessive compulsive disorder in um, in a group of patients with Prader-Willi syndrome, and that's a genetic syndrome um, that affects the hypothalamus, which is right about in the middle of the brain. You know, I, at one point I knew what the hypothalamus was there for, but I <laughs> I forget. What, it's very what, important, I promise. <laughs> my knowledge is like uh, on a merry-go-round. I need to come around again every once in a while. Yeah, well, the hypothalamus is attached to the pituitary gland, which most people think of because that's like the puberty one. Um, so yeah. the hypothalamus controls hunger. Um, it controls knowing when you're full and when you're not full. And it controls other aspects of kind of homeostasis, keeping the body temperature regulated and things like that. And also it is very important for things like puberty and, and those hormone secretions. And those might be involved in obsessive compulsive disorder. So uh. in particular, I studied oxytocin and vasopressin. And those are kind of like oxytocin's the feel-good hormone. It's the one that mm -hmm. helps with labor and, um, and and things like that, and also orgasm. Um, and so some of those hormones may also play a role in obsessive compulsive disorder. And so mine was a pilot study as part of my thesis. Did you think that you were going to never go back to acting? How did you think about the future? Yeah, I really thought that I enjoyed being a research professor was what I thought I would do. You know, I had I had been teaching for for years as a as a graduate student. Um, you know, I, I was enjoying a relatively, you know, kind of quiet and anonymous life. You know, nobody cared what I looked like or, you know, if I wanted to put some streaks in my hair that were a crazy color, no one was telling me I couldn't. And you know, to be honest, the world of academia is not without complexity and ego and a lot of the things that we have in the industry. But um, yeah, I, I was really enjoying my life and, you know, was very, um, very excited to have children and, and be home with them. You know, I actually left academia to be home with my children, meaning I got my doctorate um, and then did not take a postdoc position. And eventually that led to me returning to acting because I was running out of health insurance. That's the truth. <laughs> It's so ironic <laughs> that that show business is what you fall back on. Well, you know, the SAG-AFTRA health plan is pretty darn good. So I figured <laughs> if I can get a couple jobs here and there, I, I mean, I had a, you know, I had an infant and a toddler, you know, and yeah. I was teaching kind of to make ends meet. I, I did not have a fortune, you know, waiting for me. People did not make a lot of money like they do now in the 90s, especially teenage actors, you know, it it was a very different world. We didn't have endorsements and publicity stuff. And, you know, I was just living my life. <laughs> and, you know, once I was cast on The Big Bang Theory and that became my full-time job, it definitely changed my schedule. And you know how sitcom life is. That became, you know, for for nine years, that's the place that I went to work after literally just trying to get insurance. And I ended up on this, you know, the most popular comedy in America by accident. You know, and then I kind of woke up, you know, nine years later and, you know, I have a, you know, I have a, now I have an almost 16 year old and a just 13 year old. And, um, you know, a lot of important years of my life have been spent on the set and that's really amazing. You know, do, do your, do your children watch the show? Have they seen the show? No, it's funny. They, when I started on big bang theory, um, they were, in my opinion, too young to be watching or pretty conservative over here in terms of what kids see. No, they've seen some episodes of the show I'm working on now, which is called Call Me Cat for Fox. Um, but, you know, they they think of me as mom, and I guess that's pretty appropriate. <laughs> they're, they're teenagers now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So 
as a neuroscientist, can you confirm for me that teenagers, are their minds are controlled from outer space? <laughs> they are definitely um, their own breed. I'm grateful for my my studies because I do think it gives me a lot of compassion. Oh, that's the hypothalamus at work. <laughs> exactly. No, but mostly, you know, I'm grateful that they're being raised in a time when, um, you know, they're being encouraged to be to be sensitive and to be communicative. And, um, you know, that's a lot of what I try and pass on to them. I guess this feels like an appropriate time to tell you that. The way I first knew who you were, I was born in 1975, mm. and there's an album called Free to Be You and Me. Yes, and yes. Your voice is ingrained in my head. I know that album forwards and backwards, upside down, every which way. And of course, I know who you are as an actor, but my very first interaction with you for most of the years of my life was in teaching me that it was okay to have feelings and that there are different kinds of boys and different kinds of girls and that we're all one big family. And um, it was an incredibly important part of my childhood and my upbringing. And um, I've been wanting to tell you that since I was three years old. <laughs> <laughs> That's so nice. Thank you. And that, of course, is the brainchild of Marlo Thomas, who was so, so smart, a real thinker, a real mover in the feminist movement. Yes. I mean, that that album changed so many lives. And as I said, I, I know <laughs> I, I can imitate you better than you can. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's interesting is that, that album st still continues to be listened to and known by young people. Yes. My, my grandson, when he was 11, about 10 years ago, was mm -hmm. in... Uh, a show at school based on free to be you and me. Yeah, very powerful. And, and you know, I'm grateful that my parents had that consciousness, you know, to raise us like that. Um, and, you know, it's how I try and raise my kids, too. You've written two books about raising children, mm -hmm. girl, first girls and then boys. What are mm -hmm. the exact titles? Yeah, the, the girls one is called Girling Up. And the boys one is called Boying Up. And I wrote them more from a neuroscience perspective than from a mom perspective. But obviously there's a mixture of, you know, trying to explain. I basically wrote the book that didn't exist, you know, when I was a kid um, to help understand what happens in your body and with your hormones, but also where you kind of fit, um, you know, sociologically in our culture. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, I have to say, you know, our culture is changing so rapidly. Those terms feel so, you know, um, so gendered and, uh, you know, girling up and boying up. Exactly. We, we need to be very careful. And so, um, yeah. you know, I, I want to acknowledge that, of course. When you were girling up or growing up, what was your childhood like? You know, I, I grew up in a very Jewish home, a very colorful home. Um, I also grew up in a home that had a lot of, um, mental illness challenges. And, um, you know, my, my grandparents came from very, very rough, um, homes, you know, as, as many did in, in those times. And so, you know, my parents did the best they could, but I, I like to point out, you know, a lot of the reason I started my podcast, um, which is called my MBA breakdown is to talk about mental health in ways that, um, you know, help us have a vocabulary. Cause back then we didn't know what to call things, you know, um, and, and it can be helpful. Tell me about the podcast. It sounds what 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 I've heard of it sounds really interesting and engaging. Yeah, and 
as entertaining as it is, you're doing everything we've been talking about. You're breaking down the complexities of life. Yeah. And it, it tell, really, tell, tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it, it, it came, I mean, people have been saying, oh, you should have a podcast, you know, for a long time. And I, I like, I didn't really know kind of like why you would do that. I have a, a YouTube channel where I make videos and, you know, talk about things that I hope people will um, want to hear about. You know, I talk a lot about being divorced and I talk a lot about being a public person and being a public person who has social anxiety. And, you know, I talk about a lot of things, um, but the podcast world was one that I hadn't really entered. And when COVID hit, um, my partner, Jonathan Cohen and I were realizing how much of our mental health was struggling during this period of isolation and uncertainty and my anxiety started spiking and, you know, I, I couldn't sleep and all these things. And we kind of thought, you know, with all the resources that I have and all the therapy I've been in, I'm still struggling. What about people who don't have those resources mm -hmm. and who don't even know how to name it? Um, a lot of people don't know the difference between anxiety and depression, right? Mm. So we started a podcast, um, we, we literally, I used to live in this house and we turned it into a podcast studio. So, um, Jonathan and I have a different guest on every week who either struggles with mental illness or has some connection to some aspect of mental wellness. And we also speak to people who are experts in the field, but most people are just experts in their own journey and their own struggle. We're not looking to say, this is how to cure depression, or this is what mm. you should do. But we also do talk a lot about some of the, quote, alternative things that people can do that many people don't even know about that do impact anxiety and depression, for example. You know, things as simple as exercise or having a sleeping schedule or meditation or knowing about what foods you put in your body, things like that. Um, mm. And we do, we talk to people, a lot of people who are former addicts, people who are sober, um, how they stay sober, what works for them. Uh, but we've been having a really good time. We just had Matthew McConaughey on and he's a very big star. So we were very excited about that. <laughs> When we come back from our break, Mayim Bialik shares with me another thing we have in common, a certain degree of social anxiety. And she talks about the cats on a new sitcom and the movie she just finished directing and the difficulty of being nuanced in the age of social media. Don't forget, if you enjoy listening to the fascinating guests we have on Clear and Vivid, you can help keep the flame alive by becoming a patron of the show. Clear and Vivid and the Alda Center for Communicating Science are both nonprofit, and your patronage of Clear and Vivid helps support them both. You can become a patron at any level and get early access to special videos. At the highest level, you can get fun and sometimes weird benefits, like my recording of your personalized voicemail message, either with courteous dignity or for the rambunctious among you, a message with a certain amount of attitude. Take a look at patreon.com slash clear and vivid. Patreon.com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. 
Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Mayim Bialik. As a socially anxious person myself, I asked her about her own experience in social settings. Um, you know, the, the truth is, when it comes to social events... I, I, um, you know, my answer is always, I don't want to go, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. there are certain things, you know, that, that we do have to go to. And, you know, I've been nominated for four Emmys and if I could have stayed home, I would have. Um, so, you know, I try and build as much security around it as possible. You know, for me, that means not wearing, I know this sounds silly, but not wearing an impossible dress that makes me uncomfortable, meaning trying to create as much comfort as I can. Um, huh. you know, I, I don't starve myself. I don't add to the anxiety by also saying I need to lose 10 pounds or anything like that. Um, having a good buddy to go with is important, you know, whether that's my partner or a close friend who knows me and who isn't going to say, this is amazing. Let's stay all night. Um, <laughs> you know, I would never want to be perceived as aloof or cold, but I also know that I do leave events early and it's not because I don't respect the event or want to be there, it's because a certain amount of stimulation is enough. And I start feeling really, really uncomfortable. Um, and it's at a certain point, it's best that I leave. <laughs> you know, when I, if I'm at an event and I walk into a room and there are a hundred people milling around drinking and eating shrimp, <laughs> I get so panicked, I talk to the first person next to me, and I've often talked to right. a waiter for a half an hour. I've done that, too. I find a corner, and whoever's closest, I don't That's look it. at anyone else. I'm happy against the wall. <laughs> a true wallflower. <laughs> yeah, right. So we got the same coping mechanism. Well, if, if I'm at a party with you, I'm going to talk to you, because you get it. Yeah, no, I'll look for you. You mentioned Call Me Cat. Tell me about Call Me Cat. Um, I, I don't know anything about it, although you're going into your second season. We're going into our second season, which, you know, we made a TV show during COVID, which is not easy. I'll just be honest. How did you do that? Yeah, we how did, we how did it with no live audience. And, you know, I'm a Chuck Lorre bred uh, person, so I believe in a live audience. We didn't have a live yeah. audience. We couldn't even have writers on set. Um, so. Well, that may be an advantage. <laughs> It's true. Because they keep, they, every time you say a line, they change it. Well, sometimes they need to be changed. No, but it was more kind of about just the process of how we would get notes. I mean, it was so disjointed. It was very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, 
But we we managed, you know, we were only shut down uh, for a couple weeks with a COVID delay after Thanksgiving. Um, and it's based on a British show called Miranda, um, which was about a very, very unusual woman who's very, very quirky. And um, her mother's always trying to marry her off to someone. And she's just a very quirky, fun, independent woman. So we did an American version of that. Um, it's produced by Jim Parsons, who I was on The Big Bang Theory with, him and his company. Um, and then I have a production company called Sad Clown Productions. And so we produce it together. And it's about a very quirky woman who owns a cat cafe, which is one of those places where people come to pet cats and adopt them. And she's very quirky. She's got... Um, you know, a lot of she's actually socially anxious and um, she's got an active imagination. We do break the fourth wall. That's something that the British show did. And we wave at the end. And um, it's a very <laughs> I, I think it was a really rough year for for most people, you know, in some way or another. And um, we're happy that we could provide, you know, some laughter. And um, yeah, so that's that's where we are. So cats are involved. Cats are involved. Her name is Catherine with a, with a K, and she goes by Cat. Um, and yes, we we have about six to twelve cats in rotation um, on our set. We decided very early on we weren't going to care about continuity, so most of them are ragdoll cats and just like to sit there. They are trained to basically grow up on sets so that the sounds of all of the cameras moving and the people doesn't uh. upset them and make them skittish. So once that's not a distraction for them because they're used to those sounds, they follow directions very nicely, I, I promise. And you wrote and directed a movie that you're editing now? I did with Dustin Hoffman and Candace Bergen. Um, that's great. It was, yeah, it was a, a really, really, um, I mean that's like a fantasy cast, you know, um, it's, it is about a family that has been touched by mental illness and there are absolutely aspects of my life and absolutely aspects, not of my life. Um, but yeah, I wrote about a very complicated family and, um, Dustin and Candace were incredible together and, um, yeah, I'm in post-production right now. The title is intriguing. As sick as they made us. Who are we talking about? Parents? Yes, we're talking about parents. Um, yeah, the, the title is is a deliberate kind of um, double meaning of, you know, we are what our parents literally made. You know, we are all the product yeah. of our parents. Um, and we also are made by our experiences and, you know, the way that we, um, yeah, the way that we're raised. So, you know, it's not, this is not a movie that I wrote to bash my family or bash people with mental illness or, or bash challenging situations in families. Um, it, it really is. It's a movie about kind of the redemptive aspects of a family that has a tremendous amount of, uh, challenges. And it was a really, really beautiful, um, process, you know, to write and to work on a movie like that. Um, directing came, somewhat naturally to me, um, you know, in terms of the technical aspects that I've always gravitated towards. Um, but, you know, it's definitely intimidating to direct Dustin Hoffman and Candace Bergen, but we had a really, really <laughs> great time. I can't wait to see it. You brought up something that I'm interested in because you write all the time. You speak spontaneously on your podcast. Mm-hmm. We're in a time now where many things are controversial. Everything is controversial. <laughs> yeah. And it's very difficult to present a nuanced point of view. 
there, we've lost nuance is really the problem. It, it's really hard, isn't it? Yeah. As soon as you say the word that's forbidden right. by somebody, yeah. they assume that's your entire position and you don't have a chance to nuance it up. Correct. So have how have you handled that? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I think we're all kind of muddling through, um, you know, also as the parent of teenagers, I'm learning a lot about how important language is, you know, especially Mm. to, to younger people. Um, and you know, I never thought that, that the words male and female, you know, would be more complicated than male and female, but you know, we do, we use those phrases assigned female at birth and assigned male at birth. And, you know, my kids teach me all the things I shouldn't say. I said, I'm glad, (laughs) I'm glad I have, uh, I'm glad I have teenagers. Otherwise, I'd never know what to say because they're constantly correcting <laughs> me. Um, you know, I, I, one of the things I mean, I appreciate you talking about nuance. Um, you know, one of the reasons that I started my YouTube channel with a very close friend of mine, um, Emmanuel Shalev, is that he was noting how much nuance was missing. And he really felt that I was uniquely positioned as a person who you know, really is kind of somewhere in the middle of a lot of things. Like I'm a bleeding heart liberal, but I'm kind of socially conservative. And so, you know, it places me in an interesting intersection. Um, And really most of my YouTube content and a lot of what we do on our podcast is to try and bring out the finer points of an issue. And, you know, painting with a broad brush rarely works. Um, So, you know, I I try and at least, um, you know, practice what I preach. Um, you, you apparently can't be too careful and, um, you know, you, you can never be, you, when speaking off the cuff, I think it's still important for us always to remember someone is listening, you know? Boy, I think so too. That's especially if you're sitting in front of a microphone where it's kind of obvious that somebody might be listening. Yeah, but... And what are they thinking? What are they feeling? You know, you can get worked up and um, it's, yeah, it's very difficult. We are living in very, very difficult times in, in in that sense. But you must be successful at it because I remember reading more than one response, one comment to a tweet or two of yours where where the people said... I don't agree with you, but I really respect how thoughtful you were right. about what you said. Yeah, that that's a very, very high compliment. You know, I remember I did a video about open relationships. You know what this is, Alan. Like, like You mean two people are married and live as if they're well, not? <laughs> I love that definition. Sure. Um, well, I mean, you don't even have to be married. You know, some dating relationships are open relationships. Uh, and I did this video uh, saying, I don't understand this. Like, what? What? And <laughs> a lot of people responded. And I actually got some really interesting feedback um, from some therapists and, and therapists who specialize in these relationships. And I did a second video called I Was Wrong About Open Relationships. And what I didn't do is capitulate and say, oh, you're right. Everything's great. If you pick on me, I'll back down. What I said was, some of my facts and terminology were incorrect. And for that, I, I am very sorry. It still is not what I would choose, but yeah. I, I would not want to offend someone. And I don't want to be incorrect in my assessment. And it's like, it's one of my highest viewed videos because people love when people are wrong. <laughs> you know, it's interesting when you were talking about your movie, uh-huh. I was tempted 
to ask, but I don't want to give away your ending. <laughs> I was tempted to ask if there's reconciliation yes. at the end. And, and that's what you're talking about now Yeah, is reconciliation. Somebody you don't agree with has spoken in a way that you can feel some sense of respect and warmth toward sure. and or still just, not still not agree. Well, and that's that's, you know, again, for as a mom of young kids, I can see like they're not they don't see that in our culture. What they see is if you wrong me, you're dead to me and you should never be allowed to work again. <laughs> you, know? And, you know, or, you know, I mean, even with with the you know former president, you know, that we had like what they saw was a lot of a lot of hyperbolic thinking, you know, a lot of black and white thinking. And, yeah. you know, the, the truth is, no matter what party you vote for or don't vote for, it's it is always important for us to see that gray. It's always there. There's not an exception to that. And I, I think that notion of reconciliation is an interesting one, because in art, in plays and movies, yeah. the idea that there can be reconciliation and that it's one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most affecting moments in any play where there's mm-hmm. n- one side doesn't win over the other, they reconcile. Right. It's There's a freeing feeling in that. And I think that's what you're moving toward in your work, and it's what I move toward in my work. Thank you. I look forward. Well, th- thank you. I'm really glad. You know, we have we're coming to the end of our time, but I've really enjoyed exploring this stuff with you. I mean, this is like this is a fantasy conversation for me. Like I'm talking to someone that I like. Like I said, your voice it's like in my brain. Um, but no, it's a, a tremendous, tremendous honor to get to speak to you. I mean, it's it's absolutely incredible. Well, thank you. Now, before we end. Each show, we we do seven quick questions. Okay. Which are which they're not they're not threatening and they're not embarrassing, but they're <laughs> roughly about communication. Okay. And some some of them in a strange way. What do you wish you really understood? Um, my cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a close friend who's a mathematician, and his answer was my dog Murray. <laughs> Okay, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You say, you might be right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Edward R. Murrow, I read, when he would get a letter of praise or a letter of criticism, sent out the same reply, which was, you might be right. (laughs) That's amazing. It's a good it's pretty good. I love that. Okay, next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? I've gotten some real doozies. <laughs> what someone name once, one? Someone once asked me if I know Fred Savage's brother. And this was a very strange question because I I used to get asked all the time, do you know this celebrity? Do you know that celebrity? This was many years ago, and the question was, do you know Fred Savage's brother? Not do you know Fred Savage. So it's kind of a funny one. (laughs) They were trying not to be starstruck. I guess so. How do you stop a compulsive talker? (laughs) It's a... I'm sorry, I'm not available for this conversation right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. That's pretty frank. That's good. (laughs) Okay, let's say you're sitting at a dinner table. 
next to someone you don't know? How do you start up a genuine, a real conversation with the person? You're sliding out of the frame and hysteria. <laughs> oh, because I'm already feeling awkward. Um, people <laughs> start with, where are you from? Where are you from? And I'm very interested in where people are from. I've been to a lot of states in this country. And oh. I'm one of those like annoying people who has lots of factoids about everything. So like wherever you're from, I'll find something interesting to keep the conversation going about. So you become the... You, you become the person who can't stop talking. I'm an actor, Alan. Yes. <laughs> what gives you confidence? Oh, gosh. My therapy sessions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. That's a good answer. <laughs> Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, wow. I mean, many books. Um, see, hold on. I will say I'm looking around because I have a lot of my favorite books here. Um, there's a book. It's it's right over here. It's called In an Unspoken Voice. It's by Peter Levine. And it's a book about trauma and the body. And it was given to me about 10 years ago by the gentleman that it took me eight years to start dating. So my current partner <laughs> gave me that book because we knew each other and we're friends. And eight years later, out of the blue, I said, Remember that book you gave me? And we started dating. Wow, that did change things. It did. That's great. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank what you. What an honor. I cannot wait to call my mother and tell her everything we just talked about. <laughs> and do you, do you know your mother's brother? <laughs> <laughs> she didn't have one. <laughs> oh, oh, I was going to say, say hello to her brother for me. Thank you so much. This was amazing. So, uh, this was great. Bye-bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Mayim Bialik's new sitcom, Call Me Cat, has been renewed by Fox for a second season. Her YouTube channel has over a million subscribers. And her podcast focusing on mental health is called Mayim Bialik's Breakdown. The movie she wrote and directed, called As Sick As They Made Us, stars Dustin Hoffman and Candace Bergen and is now in post-production. And if all that isn't more than enough for anyone not named Mayim Bialik, she's also, of course, for the next few months, alternating as the host of Jeopardy. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with my friend Roger Rosenblatt. Roger is an exceptionally fine writer, whether he's writing novels, plays, essays, or love notes to existence. He's funny and deep, often at the same time. I wondered how he connects with what stirs him as a writer. What gets him writing? 
my most recent book is called Cold Moon. And the cold moon of the year is the last moon of the year, and it anticipates the winter solstice. One night, I was visiting in New Jersey, and I looked and I looked over the ocean. And to my left was the moon, this beautiful moon rising over the sea, shedding its light on the sea and f reflected in the waves. And the waves almost look like an audience applauding the moon. And we're little people doing little things, and suddenly there's this bigness in front of us. And... I thought, well, I'm coming to the end of my life. I'm in the eclipse years of my life. What is important to me? What is important to me that I have learned? And it came to three simple things, life, love, and responsibility. And so I wrote Cold Moon on life, love, and responsibility. Roger Rosenblatt, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.